another copy of God's Word to Philippians 3. Philippians 3. We'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Uh, last week we covered uh, 1 through 3, and this week we the rest of that section. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes this morning to behold wonderful things from your word. Thank you that you are the everlasting God, steadfast love, radiant in glory and in goodness. And show yourself more to us this morning. Use me as your vessel to proclaim your word in clarity and in truth. And work in each of us this morning for your glory and for our good and joy. In Christ's name, amen. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Now, for many, those are fairly recognizable words, but if not, they were words coined by Jim Elliott. They were written in his journal, and uh, he was a man uh, who gave his own life along with four of his friends on January 8, 1956, for the sake of a, a tribe of people in Ecuador who had never heard of Jesus or the gospel. Elliot and these other men gave all they had for the sake of Christ. And honestly, that's the attitude, that's the, the willingness that all believers are called to possess. We are to be more than willing to give up anything and everything for the sake of Christ. But there is one thing that we are to be just more than willing to give up. There is something in particular that we must give up, and that is confidence in ourselves in regard to our own righteousness, in regard to our credentials that we, that we are so often tempted to believe make us fit for salvation, make us worthy of God's grace, which is oxymoronic to be worthy of grace anyways. This morning, we pick up in chapter 3 after these first three very key verses. I'll read them again. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you as of no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out 
for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So just by way of reminder, Paul, in that section, he, he longed for believers to, to rejoice, to, to know the joy of, of the Lord, to have that joy. He wants them to have it because he wants them to be protected, protected from those who, by their teaching, strike at the vitals of the gospel. So he wants them to hold fast to the purity of that gospel, to the purity of the grace of God in Christ, because that grace and because Christ is good and right and glorious. And then he also tells them, in a sense, how, how we are to know that we are in covenant with God. He reassures that those who worship by the Spirit, who glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh, are the people of God. And that's where we pick up. And so here we come to Paul rehashing what could actually give him confidence, his own resume. And then he contrasts it with what he has resolved to as a believer in Christ. What in many ways is, in many ways is the heart, it's the core of Paul's practical theology, his day-to-day -day living. That is to give up everything for the sake of Christ, because of the glory of union with Christ and being united to the one who gave himself for his people. But as we hear that, we know that much of our trouble is that we struggle with that. We struggle to believe that practically and, and tangibly in the day today, believing the, to the core of our being and then seeing that bring about change in our way of life. You see, Paul understood human struggle, that the natural bent of the human heart, the, the default mode for the human heart is self-justification. It's where we all go. We are all excellent lawyers for our own goodness. And we can argue well, very well, why we aren't so bad, why we're better than the next person, or why we didn't actually mess up as bad as you think we messed up. Now, at the same time, we know theologically that we're sinners. I can assent, we can assent to that truth, but then really knowing that in the heart is not always the same thing. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote this a number of years ago. He said, you will never make yourself feel you are a sinner because there is a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. Have you ever felt that mechanism click? Yes, you, you have. Um, we are all on very good terms with ourselves, and we can always put up a good case for ourselves. Even if we try to make ourselves feel better that we are sinners, we will never do it, or make ourselves feel that we are, never, that we are sinners, we will never do it. There's only one way to know that we are sinners, and that is to have some dim, glimmering conception of God. So as a believer, already, if, if you are starting out from the, from the place of a believer in Christ, you already have a conception of God. You understand who God is. You, you know the nature of Christ. But part of our life is learning to grow more and more in order to realize more and more our propensity towards putting up a good case for ourselves. We, we long to know Christ more. You know, the reality is, is humanity has a deep desire to have a part in their own salvation. Grace is a beautiful reality, 
Absolutely. It's a beautiful reality. But there is also something that's a bit off-putting for most of us. Because when we realize what grace is, it screams at how truly incapable we are and how truly sinful we are. And Paul knew this heart tendency to, to put up his own um, and our own resume before others. He lived with it like the rest of us. Look at verse 4. So where Paul picks up with the closing thoughts of verse 3 and, you know, put no confidence in the flesh. He goes, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, <laughs> I've got more. And he, and he did. Paul, Paul's actually setting himself up as a foil here. He's saying that if anyone really wants to go, you want to go down this road of self-justification, bring it to me. Go on, bring it on, because I'm way better than you are. They ought to look at him first, because honestly, as far as pedigree and actions go, Paul had every reason in the world for confidence, every reason to rely upon himself. You could not get much better than Paul. Just look at his resume, verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So verse 5 looks at his pedigree, his upbringing, the, the, the privilege of who he was. He was an absolute full-blooded Jew. He had the sign of the covenant placed on him, not just whenever, but on the eighth day, according to the law. And not only was he of the people of Israel, was he of the 12 tribes, he was actually of the tribe of Benjamin. And the significance of that is Benjamin was one of only two tribes not to revolt against the Davidic dynasty. So he was, he was really, he was in a good line. And even though he was born in Tarsus, which is in Asia Minor, now present-day Turkey, and not in Israel proper, and he was, he's steeped in Greco-Roman culture, he was still full-on sold out for everything Jewish. He knew it all, like the back of his hand. Now then at the end of verse 5 and into 6, Paul moves away from what he was by birth, and he moves into what he was by achievement. In regard to the law, he was a Pharisee. This was a very strict group in regard to observance of the law. He was a disciplined man, well-respected as a member of that sect. And in regard to zealousness then for Judaism, he knew when this church started kind of showing up, was a little more fledgling, he knew this, this wasn't in line with what he was taught. And so he fought against them. He was present at the stoning of the first martyr, the stoning of Stephen, and he wrote in his letter to the Galatians this, verse uh, chapter 1, 13 and 14, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. And so with regard to righteousness... In reference to the law, what he says under the law, he was blameless. Now, Paul was very careful to follow the law. There, there was no one, what, what he's saying at this is not that he was sinless, 
but that no one could bring a charge against him about his public life, about the way he followed the law. He was meticulous. He was very careful. He was above reproach. He observed and followed the law, the whole pattern, understood the need for God's work and and all the ceremonies and the rituals. But his life was an absolute beautiful example of what it meant to be a good Jew who was a Pharisee. He had it all. This was his resume. It was absolutely impressive. And folks, I'm telling you this, it's better than yours. Okay? It's better than mine too. It's, It's better than all yours. And it's something that he held on to with a very strong grip until something happened. He was doing his duty. He was, he was heading towards Damascus because there were people from the church, and he wanted to go after them. And Jesus had a different, a different end for him, blinded him on that road. The grace of God called and changed him, grabbed hold of him. He heard the gospel, and he turned from his former way of life that was the darkness of human striving. The darkness of confidence in ourselves. Galatians 2, I've been crucified with Christ, Paul wrote. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Not by works, okay? By faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Folks, I think if we're all honest, we all have a tendency towards this self-justifying attitude of the heart. It may, you may not always think it comes out in your relationship with the Lord, but if you're married or you have kids or you work, <laughs> it comes out somewhere. Or you got neighbors you know, their grass is higher and uglier than yours, or whatever it may be. Or you drive somewhere, because no one drives as well as you. Um, Everybody's always in your way, right? We all have things in our lives, either what we were born with or what we have achieved or who we have become that we are proud of and boast in, whether we have the, 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 the social cachet not to say it or to just think it in our heart. Maybe we even have a tinge of an attitude, and I'll admit I had this attitude, and sometimes can, can, and you might go, oh boy, the God is lucky to have me attitude. And don't laugh too hard, because those of you laughing probably had the same attitude. Those things will destroy you. That self-justifying attitude at heart will destroy you. Thankfully, though, the grace of God is real, and Christ is real. Look at verse 7. So just think about, again, where, where did we just come from? Paul's laying out, hey, bring it at me. I'm better than you. But, I love the conjunctions, <laughs> but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
those things that were to his advantage, that he could have laid out, that that could well have fed a false confidence, he counted as loss. Calvin wrote, for so soon as Christ shines forth, all those things that formerly dazzled our eyes with a false splendor instantly vanish, or at least disesteemed. When the brightness of Christ shines forth, everything else fades away. It's for the sake of, it's because of Christ that Paul now counts all things as loss. Now, this idea of loss, this this word loss is only used in two contexts in the New Testament. The first context is in reference to a shipwreck and the loss of either cargo or life. Okay, so there's that kind of loss. The second is in this context where there's this juxtaposition to gain. And it's showing that what, what, what once was, was thought to be such an advantage, it's now left behind, it's discarded, it's tossed overboard because the truth about it is revealed in the light of who Jesus is. In fact, if it's what you continue to hold on to, it will weigh you down. Made me think of Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, like we've all probably heard that, the next line, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. The the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And that let us also lay aside every weight. That phrase just caught me. Because the self-justification is a massive weight we have to lay aside. Paul writes in verse 8, indeed, indeed, even, you know, let, let me keep going here. Indeed, I count everything, everything is loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Let's first look at that because of statement, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Folks, Christ is utterly worthy. Life with him in the kingdom of God is worth it. And in in some ways, even though Paul is laying out kind of his practical theology, there's, there's an implicit invitation, come know the worthiness of Christ. Psalm 34, 8, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. That that invitation, that call, come, just taste and see how good it is. Like, I I know this is maybe a weird illustration, but I remember making cinnamon toast for my kids as a, and they'd they'd look at me when I'd make it and I'd put butter on it. They're like, oh, gross, butter. And I'm like, just taste it. And then they taste the cinnamon toast. They're like, oh oh my God. You know, finally, but they had to get past the oh, gross kind of thing. And we've got to get past this. We don't totally understand Christ. We have to taste and see how good he is. Like, listen to it. We have to stop feeding ourselves on so many other things and feed ourselves on Christ. 
Taste and see that he's good. Think of Jesus' own words in two short parables in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Everything there is, everything you can imagine, when compared to Christ, it is worth losing. The knowledge of Christ, union with Him, friendship with Him, relationship with Him, the knowledge of this perfect being who gave Himself for those who had lived lives of rebellion against Him, it surpasses everything else. And this this, as I think about this, this just makes me want to know him more, to dive deeper into that vast reservoir of, of goodness and, and, and worthiness and grace. One commentator wrote, Paul recognized the radical antithesis between his former way of life and the new hope offered to him. It was either one or the other. You can't meld them both. What was required was not a mere adjustment or the incorporation of an additional element. Only a total conversion would be adequate. And Paul gladly forfeited his personal achievements to obtain the pearl of great price. Because of Christ, Paul willingly suffered the loss of all things. Now, I'll be honest, that phrase puzzled me at first. Why is it suffering to lose what is actually detrimental to you? Why is that suffering? Well, folks, any time we lose something that we know that has been part of who we are, that, that, that has been something we have relied upon, when we count that as loss, there's going to be some pain involved in that process. Our union with Christ means that we, that we actually have to put to death the worldly things that we tend to boast in, that we take pride in, that we hope will make us right with Jesus. And putting something to death, forfeiting what we took pride in very naturally, folks, that feels like suffering. It's hard. It's a fight. Because again, that, that aspect of, of grace is difficult at times because we don't always like admitting that's not what I can rely upon. That's not, what, that's not what gets me in with Jesus. There's an Alistair Begg clip of a sermon talking about the, the thief on the cross. And the thief gets to heaven and the angel at the pearly gates, he's like, so why, why are you getting in here? He goes, I, I, don't, I don't know exactly. He's like, well, do you know the doctrine of justification? Never heard of it. Have you been to any Bible studies? Nope, know nothing of it. And he keeps going on and on. And, and Alistair says, he, he says something, he's like, the only right answer is the third person. And it gets down to it, and they finally get to it, and, and they ask the guy again, and he goes, why are you here? And the thief on the cross goes, the man in the middle cross told me I could come. 
That's our only reason we are going to be in heaven is because Jesus called us. It's not the things we've done, and we have to suffer the loss of the things we hold on to. In the grand scheme of things, though, folks, it isn't suffering in that sense because of the nature and greatness of what we receive in exchange for counting it loss. But nonetheless, it can still feel that way. But I would love to get to the point, and I would love for you to get to the point where instead of it's suffering the loss, it's gladly forfeiting. It's gladly saying, I, I'm done with that. Again, this comes back, I think, to the words of Jesus in Matthew 16. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would lose, or whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Yet Paul goes further than just counting them as loss. He actually counts them as rubbish. Now, that's a pretty nice way of saying trash or dung. Something utterly worthless. Isaiah 64, 6 reminds me of this. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Folks, we got to count it all as rubbish. But then there's another question that I think comes with this. Does counting everything as a loss mean that we have to rid ourselves of all those things? No, not, not necessarily. We may be called to lose it, but what Paul is saying is that we cannot look to it for our own righteousness. Because folks, we don't want to stop being those who pursue what is right and good. You know, if you're sober, don't become a drunk just so you can say, I'm not relying on being sober anymore. We want to continue to pursue righteousness, holiness, and peace along with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart, but we can no longer have a mistaken confidence in those works. We have to recognize where our confidence lies, and that is in Christ and in Christ alone. I remember hearing not uh, originally, though, obviously, an old bit by Jack Benny. Um, and in this, a guy comes up to Jack Benny and asks him, hey, bub, you got a match? And then all of a sudden you hear, don't make a move. This is a stick up. And Benny's like, hey, hey, slow down. Put the gun down. And then the robber says, come on, your money or your life. And there's silence. And then a bit more irate, the guy goes, look, bud, I said your money or your life. And you hear Benny say, I'm thinking it over. Folks, we cannot stop and think it over here. We have to realize what is of surpassing worth. We have to know. We have to know and not have the mistaken confidence. You see, what Paul desired was to gain Christ. He works that out a bit more in verse 9. Be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
being found in Christ, in some ways, it's a further description of gaining Christ. Being found in Christ means not having a righteousness of our own. It's resting in Christ's work and his faithfulness on our behalf. In many ways, what Paul um, is writing about is what we would call justification. Obviously, there's self-justification, but there's the justification by the Lord, and our shorter catechism defines it this way. Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein He pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight only, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and what? Received by faith alone. You know, think of the language that Paul used in his verse, that he, in verse 9, very intentional. It's either our own righteousness from the law or righteousness that's real from God. And it's only the righteousness from God in which we can find hope. And then Paul goes on with these words in verse 10, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul longs to know Christ, everything Christ brings. And at this point, actually, if you think about it, at this point in, in Paul's writing and his life and ministry, he's probably known Christ for nearly 30 years. And yet he continues to say that I may know him. It's a lifelong endeavor. It's an eternal endeavor in growing in the knowledge of Jesus. He wanted to know the power of his resurrection, the power that raised Jesus from the dead. He longed to know that, and he longed for others to know that. And it's one of the beautiful things that he prayed about, and he prayed for believers. Ephesians 1, he prayed that others would know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness? The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. What working is that? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Folks, it is nothing less than the power of God that works in us. The power of God that raised Christ from the dead. That is what is at work at us to make us more and more like Christ. One commentator said, what the apostle wants is not power so that he might be thought powerful, but power so that he might be conformed to the will of God. Only the power that brought Jesus back from death will do. This is in many ways, this is sanctification. We just talked about justification. This is sanctification, that process of making us more and more like Christ. A larger catechism has a great definition, and it says, sanctification is a work of God's grace, whereby they whom God has before the foundation of the world chosen to be holy are in time through the powerful operation, and here's the line that I think is key, through the powerful operation of His Spirit applying the death and resurrection of Christ unto them renewed in their whole man after the image of God, having the seeds of repentance unto life and, and beyond that. But it's this idea, and I love how the, the catechism puts it, the Spirit applying the death and resurrection of Christ to us. It's knowing the power of His resurrection. And then even more, 
We share in his sufferings. Literally, it's the fellowship of his sufferings. It's growth and grace and transformation. It's not, folks, it's not without pain that we grow. If we just backed up a little bit in Philippians uh, chapter 1, 27 through 30, we, we see that, that, that we will suffer for his sake. We will, to some degree, follow the pattern of our Lord in our lives. We will suffer, but one of our main sufferings is going to be different. It's going to be in putting sin to death. It's going to be putting that false confidence in ourselves to death. As we are united to Christ, we will experience that reality more and more. Paul longed for that, and so should we long to be more and more conformed to the Savior. And then Paul expressed his final longing so that if by any means possible, right, so that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now let me tell you this, Paul is not expressing doubt about the outcome here. For though the, the resurrection with Christ is assured for his people, the manner in which uh, in our life of how things go is not certain. Right? We, don't, we don't know the, the number of days we have. We don't know the trials we will go through and what the Lord has for us. But what we do know, what we do know is that the end is glory. The end is the resurrection from the dead. The end is is being fully united with our Savior. So folks, Paul longed to be with Christ. He would do anything in order to see that happen. He gave up his reliance on his pedigree and his achievements because of the surpassing worth of Christ, because the grace of God gripped his life. So as I think about this, really just two overarching thoughts for my own heart, and hopefully also for yours. The first overall thought is, to what are you still clinging? To what are you still clinging? What's the weight that you need to lay aside? Where do you feel that little mechanism click and your lawyer door is released and comes out in full force? To what are you still clinging? And then with that, there's encouragement. Because the only reason that we, at the heart of it, the only reason that we cling to something other than Christ is because we see more potential in that other thing. We see more potential or hope in that than we do in Christ at that moment. It's become, in a sense, an idol. It's become a false savior. And in essence, it's because we don't know Christ well enough. Let an expulsive power of a new affection in Christ overwhelm and push out our affection for all these other things. So the encouragement is come, taste and see the Lord's goodness. Let affection for Him, let knowledge of Him drive away our propensity to cling to our own self-justifying tendencies. Let us learn to rest fully in Him and to long passionately to know Him, to be encouraged in the fellowship of the saints, to be encouraged in your daily walk with the Lord, in knowing Him, in, in faith and repentance. So be encouraged in that. So to what is your soul still clinging? And pray for a longing to know Christ more in all things, that we can come out of that darkness
of our human striving. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your work in our lives. Thank you for Christ. Pray that we would know him more, that we would rest in him, that we would trust him. Help us to deny the things that we tend to hold on to, the things that we tend to run to, to the, the ways we tend to justify and defend. Give us the grace more and more to see the goodness of our Savior. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.